Just glad to be here. It's just a joy to come and um, just to share with you, servants of the Lord, and just to see your little light shining out there tonight. You're just all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and glowing from the Lord and pasta. So <laughs> let's just pray before we begin, shall we? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, Lord, this opportunity to get together as women and just have fellowship around these tables, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you for each other. We thank you for the body of Christ, and we thank you, Lord, for um, just being here with us tonight. We pray, Lord, that you'll just encourage us here tonight, Lord, that we'll feel your love and your presence, and that, Lord, you will minister to our hearts, those things that you want to share with us, Lord. So we just thank you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So I wanted to tell you tonight that I just this theme is just great, shining, shine in and through, and the scripture is Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst, and isn't this so true, of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Isn't that encouraging and uplifting? And when you see all the news and the bad things that go on today and our world is falling apart in every which way it can, to know that, you know, I remember Ann Graham said this, that we're not falling apart, girls, we're falling into place. And um, that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? Because these things are going to come. Jesus said, you know, when the world gets worse and worse, don't be surprised. I've told you this was coming. And then we know that his coming is coming soon. And so I am really kind of a zealot about, about getting the gospel out. Because I don't think we have a lot of time left. I, don't, I think our days are shortened. And so, you know what? I just want to just take this time tonight and talk to you about just letting your light shine in this world today. Instead of maybe becoming so discouraged about how the world's going, let's make a difference in our neighborhood, at our jobs, in our families. Let's Let's let our light shine. And you know, those are the happy people in the world, the ones that are letting their light shine. We're going to talk a little bit about um, being an evangelist and witnessing to others too. In the scripture, you know, when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, which was just the all-time classic messages of all messages, right after the Beatitudes, Jesus said, let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That is just so clear, isn't it? Let your light shine. And I always say, if Jesus said it, you better believe it. And so that was his word to us in that classic, important sermon. I have three boys, or Dawn and I have three boys, and I have three daughter-in-laws and nine grandchildren. And uh, one of them hasn't given me any children yet. We're waiting. They've been married a couple years. But one of them, the oldest one, gave me three and then the next one gave us six. So we're very, um, I'm very happy about that daughter-in-law. She's given me six children. And on Mother's Day, I always tell her she's the best. I, I, I couldn't have done it. And, you know, she, she's just done it. Uh, her husband's a pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Jose. So they're up there. But when I was raising these kids, Don would go off on Sunday mornings because we were up at Lake Arrowhead at this time. And he was pastoring the church there and getting the Bible school going. And He would go to church early and, you know, how the pastor's wife, she comes later with the kids. You know, they're all dressed and scrubbed and and at church. So I'm I'm walking by the boys' room, the two older ones, and 
I just uh, said, you guys got to get ready for church, okay? They were three and six years old. And um, so a little while later, I walk by, and they haven't moved a muscle, nor have they changed any clothes or done anything. And I'm walking by, and there they are sitting in their bedroom. They shared a bedroom. And they're sitting on the floor with their legs crossed like little monkeys, and they're in an intense conversation. Instead of barging in like I normally would do and say, what are you guys doing? Get to West. We're going to be late for church. Somehow God just shut my mouth, which is a miracle. And I just sort of stopped in the doorway and I started listening to the boys. And my oldest one, Marcus, who's six, says to the three-year-old Michael, Michael, your problem is you just need to be born again. And Michael, who for some reason at that age couldn't pronounce R, and he had a Boston accent. I don't know where that came from, but he went, I know, Maki, because I'm so sick in my heart. (laughs) And so I'm I'm listening, and Marcus goes on. He says, see, Michael, you're sick in your heart because you just need Jesus. You're going to clean up the heart. You're going to feel a lot better. You just need to get saved. And so I'm going, this is great. So I go in, and I sit down, and I just take that moment, and And I said, Michael, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart right now? You know, take that opportunity, girls. I don't care how young they are. Take that opportunity. Do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? "Uh Uh-huh, mama, uh uh-huh. Because I was so sick in my heart. (laughs) So I look at Michael. We decide, let's clench the deal. So I said, honey, would you like to, to do it right now with Marcus and I? And we'll just pray with you. And sure enough, we prayed with him. And, you know, sinner's prayer and ask Jesus in his heart and He looks up at us when he's all through praying. He's three, and he's sitting there, and he looks at us, and he vomits all over the carpet. He was sick in his heart all right. But it was a little lower than his heart, and it was in his stomach, and he had the flu. And so we didn't go to church that day, needless to say. But Marcus and I got him saved. So it was a great day, and we're really happy. And today he's in the ministry. So, you know, I just say, take that opportunity. Don't miss an opportunity. Well, now they're raising kids of their own, and it's fun to see my grandchildren get saved one by one, you know, even those that have strayed as they're coming back to the Lord. It thrills me to see this next generation. You know, and when I was one day reading this scripture, it just hit home, and it's in Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, you don't, you know, don't turn there, and if you do and you want to, this is great scripture. Luke chapter 4, I, I asked that question to you, why did Jesus come? And you would all say, if I took a survey, you would say to die on the cross for our sins, that we could get saved, right? Yes, he did. But there were other things that he did along the way here that are very important. And one day I just stopped and I started looking at this. And he tells us in Luke chapter um, 4, 18, verse 18 through 22, he had gone and he was just starting out in his ministry. He had gone into the synagogue, and they handed him, realizing that he was a teacher, they handed him the scriptures to read, and so he began to read. And he read out of Isaiah, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. And I want you to get this part. Why did Jesus come? What did the Holy Spirit come upon him to anoint him to do? And this is why he came besides the cross. This is what he did. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Don't you love that? It doesn't say to the rich, because now it just includes everybody, right? I love that, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And how many days in our lives do we need that one? To proclaim liberty to the captives 
There's worse things than slavery. There's slavery of the soul, girls, isn't there? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, that we might be able to see him and who he really is. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed, oppressed and depressed. We just pass out pills these days and send them to shrinks to take care of these things. But Jesus came to heal those that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He finished reading the book. He handed it to the attendant and he sat down. And every eye, it says, in the room was fixed on Christ. And he began to speak to him. And this is what he said. Today. This scripture that I just read to you is being fulfilled in your eyes. What is he saying? He's saying, I just read about myself, and I have come to do this for you. I've come to help you with all of these things that you are going through. He's living among human beings, mankind, and he sees our pain and our sorrow. He sees so clearly what sin did to the world and what Satan has done. And don't you imagine it broke his heart so many times as he saw the result of the Garden of Eden and when sin entered in. And so he said, I am here to help you. I'm here to help you with these things. Jesus was allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through him, and he is, it says, our example. A few years ago, um, my husband had resigned from the last church that we were pastored. We'd pastored several in The last one was in Laguna Beach, and he just felt that we were to pack our bags and that we were to just travel and serve the Lord and mission trips. We're working at Potter's Field up there part of the time. We're working in Philadelphia part of the time and and just doing retreats and all this, and he just felt like that's what the Lord was calling us to do full time. And so um, that's what we began to do. And I remember he came home one day, and he said, K.P. O'Hannon, do you know who he is? He's that great, you know, missionary to India. He said, has invited us to go to India and speak at the seminary there and see what he's doing there and go visit his work and to share. And I'm saying, that is a great trip for the guys. I think you should go with some of the guys and go on that trip. And he's looking at me and he goes, no, we were invited as a couple. And and I'm thinking, how many hours away is India on a plane flight? And, you know, how is the food? And... Am I going to get sick? And, you know, all those silly girl things that we think about. And so I'm real hesitant, and he looks at me, and I love Amy Carmichael. Do you know who Amy Carmichael is? You know, she was that great missionary to India. And I love her books, and I've read them since I was in high school. And so he's looking at me, and he goes, you know, Amy Carmichael's going to be in heaven. And when you get there, you're going to meet her. And what if she says to you, Jean, did you ever go to India? What are you going to say to Amy? I said, that's just low, Don. That is really, really not fair. Because he knew when I was in high school, the Lord began to speak to me about, about going into full-time Christian work. And so the worst place I could think of going was India. No offense if you're from India. But it was a long way from home. And, you know, and I'm thinking, he's going to call me to India. And I remember thinking, Lord... You really, really want me to go that far away, you know, and um, I'd have to give up my country, and I probably wouldn't get married. And, you know, I went on with all these things, and then the Lord just showed me a picture of myself being born. And that he said, when you were born, what did you bring with you? And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, actually nothing. I didn't bring any money because I didn't have a purse when it came. And I didn't have any friends. 
I didn't even have any clothes. And the Lord spoke so clearly to my heart. I was 15. And he said, and that's exactly how you're going out. Now, what would you like to do with the rest of your life? And I somehow at that age knew that if I let him direct my life and lead and guide me wherever he wanted to take me, whether it was India or Africa or America or wherever he put me, if I followed him, I'd be happy. And if I didn't, no matter if I was a multimillionaire, I would be miserable. And I somehow knew that, and I said, all right, wherever you want to take me, you just take me, and I know if I'm in your will, I'll be okay. And so through the years, it hasn't been too bad. I've been mainly, you know, in America, but I have been to Africa and El Salvador and other other countries, but India was really kind of the classic for me. And so when I looked at Don, I knew that I knew that the Lord wanted me to say yes. And you know what? I am so glad that I went because I'll never be the same after seeing that country. It was just a very um, fascinating country. And while I was thinking about going to India and when I saw it, I read this story about this woman in Luke chapter 13, just over a couple chapters from where we were. And I got to thinking about her. And so I want to, I'm going to tell you about India in just a minute. But I want to tell you about this woman because when Jesus had said, I came to heal the brokenhearted and, you know, uh, the blind and the oppressed and the captive, it's exactly what he went out and did all through his years of ministry. And in Luke chapter 13, there's just a few little verses in this one little story in here about this woman. And I love this because she was a woman and because she was suffering, it really appealed to my heart. It says in verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. And this was her infirmity. She was bent over. I mean, she was really bent all the way over, like from the waist I picture it, and could in no way raise herself, which means she was really bent over. Have you seen those people? I've seen them, different places, the markets, the airports, and every time I see them, I just want to stand up really straight because I still can, and I'm thinking I need to watch my posture, and, you know, and, and these people are suffering going through this, and, you know, all this woman probably saw every day was her feet and other people's shoes, but across the room, Jesus sees her, this bent-over woman who had this infirmity for eight years. Can you imagine walking around like that for 18 years? And Jesus saw her and he called her to him. Come, he said to her. And and then he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmities. I, I just know. He looked at her with such tremendous compassion. And he laid his hands on her and it said that immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And what do you think the first thing she saw was when she stood up straight? The face of Jesus. And I'm sure she was, in many ways, never the same again. Fascinating story. little side note here, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. And he answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And so he says to the crowd, kind of showing off, there are six days on which a man ought to work, therefore, uh, therefore come and be healed on one of those days and don't be healed on the Sabbath day. You know, I just want to go, he has a screw loose. Because, you know, somebody just got healed. The, the, this is our small villages. They know this woman had this for 18 years. They saw her every day. And she's standing up straight after 18 years. And he totally misses it. 
But you know what? He didn't know Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, and so he isn't getting it. When you don't know Jesus, it's hard to understand the scriptures even, isn't it? Because it says, when we get saved, that the Holy Spirit will come in us, and he'll translate this book for us so we can get it. And this ruler of the synagogue didn't get it, but Jesus went after him, and I, I just love this part. Jesus said to him, you hypocrite, I like that, you hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, okay, being a daughter of Abraham, and then he goes and says, whom Satan has bound, and he stops and he goes, think of it, for 18 years, Satan had bound her, and that she was loosed on the Sabbath day, and when Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, as they should have been, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by Jesus, and that's what he did. He came to real to reach out to the hurting. Well, when I went to India, and reading this story, I realized that I was seeing a bent over people, a bent over nation. That's how I pictured them. They were suffering so terrible. They were poor. All that they were going through. First of all, let me just tell you, as a side note, that the taxi drivers are absolutely hysterical. We asked the missionaries why the taxi drivers drive so frighteningly. And he said, oh, we have rules, but we drive with our own understanding. (laughs) You know, and so I said, do you not have any laws in this land? And really, truly, they play the game of chicken constantly all day long. And they're heading for, you've been there, they're heading for each other. And then one of them pulls away the last minute. So we had this long ride to get to the seminary where we were going in the car, and I was so jet-lagged, I didn't care what the driver did, because I just was passed out cold. But Don was very much awake, and, and K.P. Wendon's daughter-in-law was in the front seat with the driver, and she turned around, and she said, are you really scared? And he said, I, ha- I have never been, and Don's not a very frightened person, he goes, I- I've never been so scared in my entire life. And, you know, it's on my side, because they drive on the other side of the road, because they drive like the British do. And so it's my side, I'm sitting over here, it's going to get hit, but I'm so jet-lagged, I really don't care. But he's looking at me, and he goes, Jean, we're going to die. (laughs) So that was our kind of initiation into India. And um, we went to the seminary, and I will never forget that night. We got there in the evening. It was beautiful. The campus was absolutely beautiful. He designed it after some English building church, and it was really pretty. And, and the Indian people are very cleanly. They, um, with their black hair and their dark skin, and they wear beautiful bright colors. Really, it is a gorgeous nation in that way to see it. And all of these seminary students, a couple hundred of them, were sitting in front of me. I was in the back, um, you know, with a few of the girls that uh, were sitting there. The boys are separated from the girls in the seminary. They don't sit together or mix. And all of, all of these fellows in front of me with their white shirts and their trimmed hair, and they were singing the worship songs, girls, that we sing. And they were worshiping with their hands raised up to the Lord. And I, I knew their songs, and I'm just thinking, I, I really started to cry. I thought, I wish Amy Carmichael could be here to see this. She'd be so thrilled with what is happening in her country. And then they began to tell me stories as we went through that week, and They told me a story about one of the girls that couldn't go home anymore because her parents wouldn't accept her because she had become a Christian and they were from a Hindu home. Another fellow went home for a holiday from school and his parents put his dinner plate outside on the porch and he was no longer welcome inside that home because he had become a Christian. These students, many of them, 
paid great prices to come to Christ. They had to give up everything to come here and do this. But you know what? They were bent over people. They were in sin, and they were hurting. And when they found Jesus, they so grabbed onto him, they weren't going to let go no matter what it cost them. And so the school sends out young women into villages because the men cannot approach the women in these villages, so they send the girl students out. And they go into these villages, maybe three of them together, and they help the women. They help get water. They order, they call back and have the, you know, seminary guys bring in water trucks for them if they're short of water in that village. And they'll help with basic needs for the women and win their friendship and their hearts. And then they'll send to the seminary and they'll send out a pastor to start the church. And that's how they're doing it all over India. So the work was very fascinating to watch. The worst caste of all is, you probably know this, but it's the Dolly caste. You can't get lower than that. You're not better than an animal or the lowest of all servants, and you can't get out of your caste. You're stuck. You're born in it. That's where you are. Don't you love America? I mean, I really realized how absolutely over the top we are blessed to live in this country. But these people in that situation are coming to Christ by the thousands in the Dolly caste. K.P. Ohannon used to minister to more of the middle class and all that, and someone challenged him, why don't you minister to the Dalit caste people? And so he did. And they started coming to Christ oh, in huge numbers, thousands of them. And do you know what they said? Hinduism has done nothing for us. Maybe Jesus can. And of course he did. Amen? And he does. One day they invited us to one of their works, and it was called the Bridge of Hope. And what they do is they go into very poor villages and they go to the parents of the children and they're working, they're hardworking people, they're an intelligent people, they believe in education, they want to learn English. In fact, they told us that it is every Indian boy's dream to visit America at some point in his life. And so they said to these parents in in these poor villages, we will take your children at 3 o'clock after school and we will take care of them for you until 6 o'clock when you get home from work. But we want you to know that we are going to teach them about the Bible and we're going to teach them worship songs. But we will also teach them English and we will feed them a hot meal. And the parents said, have at it. Take the kids. Great way to reach these people. So they said, would you like to see one of these Bridge of Hopes? And we said we would. So one day they took us in. We're going down this dirt road. We're outside of the main city. It's a poor, poor village. And I mean poor. Um, there's water buffalo everywhere. They live on the side of the road, and they're like your dog or cat that went out for the day. And they're huge with horns. And I go, aren't the people worried? They said, no, they don't pay any attention to them. You know, they just, they just, I said, well, where do they live? Well, they have owners. They go home at night, and they live in their little gates by the house. And then in the morning, the owner lets them go, and they wander through town. And nobody bothers them because they're holy, you know, and so they eat your gardens and everything. But here are the water buffalo and the goats going down the street. We turned off into this little village, and this mangy dog crossed the street in front of us. And I looked to the side, and there were two girls, and one was combing through another one's hair, picking something out. And the missionary girl looked at me, and she said, she's cleaning the lice out of her hair. And we kept on going, and we came down to this home. And it had a a backyard, and in it were, were two rooms where the children were taught, one for the boys and one for the girls. And they brought them all out when we came, and they had them sit in the yard on mats, the boys on one side, the girls on the other, and there were 80 children in that backyard. 
Their little shoes were in order at the front gate. There weren't very many of them. They were clean. They were pressed. They had their hair in braids. They had bows in their hair. Some had little earrings. They loved to dress up. They loved to wear beautiful colors. But their clothes were very, very worn and old. But you could tell they got all cleaned up. The Americans were coming today. I felt so honored I wanted to cry. And they sat Don and I down at this table in the yard, and they had... They had this little tablecloth on it, and they put flowers. They handed us flowers, little, like, weeds flowers in a little vase. And then they did a whole program for us, part in English, part in their own language. But the thing I remember out of that day so much was, besides the kids sitting there, just fascinated at staring at us Americans, and we were fascinated with them. And an older woman, one of the missionaries, sitting over in the corner of the yard over an open fire cooking broth and rice for their dinner in a big old pot, they did this program. And three girls got up, and I would say they were probably seven, eight, nine years old. And they sang this song in English for us. And this is the part I remember out of that day so strongly. The song went something like this. If our mothers or fathers forsake us, Jesus never will. And if our aunties and our uncles forsake us, Jesus never will. And if our friends forsake us, Jesus never will. And someday, when we die, it will be okay, because Jesus will be with us. And I watched those girls sing that song. They have arranged marriages still in that country. And I thought, they're probably going to marry them off to Hindu boys. What will their lives be like, changing their babies' diapers and cleaning their houses? Will their husbands be hard on them because they're Christians? And I wondered if this song would come back to them. And they would sing it to their babies. This influence, this light that is going into this darkness is permeating their hearts. How far will it go? Only God knows for sure. But they keep pressing on. I remember we were in New Delhi one day. It was at evening. It was dark out. We were going down the street and it was like a big street, like three lanes on each side, like a tiny freeway, but it was, you know, it was streets in the city. And as we were going along, there was a center divider, maybe three, three feet wide, and two women were there right next to our car, and they were putting their children down for the night. I mean, if one of them rolled off in the gutter, they would have been killed. And I, I said to the missionary who was driving, I said, what are they doing? He said, they're putting their kids to bed for the night. I said, in the middle of a road like this, he said, oh, they feel far safer there than they do on the streets of the city. I thought, wow, how protected we are here. He said that in New Delhi alone, there are 500,000 homeless children. And he said that the government's offered to come in and educate them, but the mafia's taken over, and then the parents also, and they'll maim these children to get them to be beggars so they can make money. And they don't want the kids educated because they want beggars. Because that's how it's all about the money. Isn't it sad? All over the world, it's all about the money. And these, these children suffer. I remember that the, uh, K.P. O'Hannon's daughter wanted to go to an American restaurant, and we found Colonel Sanders. And Don went in, and he ordered a Diet Coke. And they go, we don't have that here. You know, and I'm poking him, and they like, don't, don't. <laughs> they don't sell Diet Cokes in this country. They're starving to death. They don't diet here. <laughs> you know, if, if an Indian woman is a little bit on the heavy side, it's just absolutely wonderful. Because everyone knows that her husband loves her because he gives her food. 
So it's a different world, I'm telling you. And I looked at this country, and I said to myself, it's about over-nation. It's about over-people. They are bent. They are crooked. They cannot see. It's a land filled with absolutely thousands and thousands of idols. You should see the idols there. It's incredible. Everywhere. Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. That's what Jesus came for. And that's what the missionaries are doing there. When we left K.P. O'Hannon, he, we, he had just bought a 300-bed hospital. They had radio stations all over the country getting this into people's homes. He had started Bible schools and seminaries all over. And um, just to see what he had done, I remember when we left, I said, I feel like you know the Queen of Sheba that went to see Solomon, and she says, the half was not told of what you were doing here. And I felt that about his missionary work. I was teaching a class to the girls in one of the Bible schools one day, and I was telling the story of how Mary anointed Jesus with the perfume and wiped it with her hair, broke the bottle, and, you know, those, that, one of the stories where she had poured the perfume in. I remember looking at one of the, the girls sitting there in the class. I had to have an interpreter, and the tears just coming down her face. And afterwards, I asked if they wanted to say anything to me or ask questions, and the interpreter interpreted for us, and one of the girls raised her hands, and she said, when you go back to America, will you ask the women there to pray for us here? And my heart just broke for her. I thought how blessed we are. These young people had given up everything. But KP's work is a light shining. Those missionaries are shining in darkness to a bent-over nation. You know, I noticed in the scriptures that Jesus reached out to those often with the greatest needs. You know, the Pool of Bethesda, that man had been there for, what, 30 years or something. And I imagine maybe he'd been there the longest. I don't know, but it was a long time to be crippled laying by the Pool of Bethesda. And and you always notice he reaches out to those that are hurting. And, And sometimes I wondered if it was always the worst ones in the crowd he'd reach out to first. Do you remember the movie The Passion? It was just on TV for Easter recently, and I I got part of the end of that clip again. And I I think, you know, every so many years when you can handle it, you should watch it again because you just sit and cry. And one of the scenes that always gripped me out of that movie, besides the cross and that scene, which just tears your heart apart, and I think, why shouldn't we see that? It's what he did. Why shouldn't we know what he did for us? But one of the scenes that meant so much to me when I saw it the first time was the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Do you remember that part of it? And they they all brought her and they were going to stone her, all the religious leaders, and they caught her in the very act of adultery. And they're bringing her to Christ and they're going to go, you know, we're going to test him and she's going to get stoned and they're getting ready to pick up rocks and stone her. and, And Jesus just looks down and he said, you know, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And you know the story so well. And And pretty soon they start disappearing because they're all convicted. And pretty soon there's no one there to stone her except for Jesus. And in that movie, it depicts her as just facing the ground because she's absolutely humiliated and devastated and a sinner and caught and no place else to go in this huge crowd of men. And so she is face down in the dirt and she realizes suddenly that nobody is there but Jesus. And at that point, you kind of realize in the film that she gets that she's been forgiven, that they're not going to kill her today, that this man right here just saved her life. He did something no one else could do, and she's so grateful. 
She's so grateful that she just, with her face in the dirt, her hand reaches out. Do you remember that part of the movie? And she just touches his sandal, his foot. And what she's saying is, thank you, thank you. Jesus, the light of the world. Reaching sinners who have no place else to go that are so very hopeless. He was our example. I don't know if you've ever heard of Stuart and Jill Briscoe. They're authors and we know them as friends. He pastored a church back east for years. and she, was a, she worked with youth all the time. And she told me, she said, you know, you often think that the worst kid in the group is never going to come to Christ. But she said, I've often found in youth work that it is the worst kid in the group that comes to Christ first. You see, they know they're sinners. And sometimes we don't witness to people because we think they'll never come. They are so far down the dirt road. They are never going to listen. And you know, sometimes they're just the ones that want to know the most because they know they're the worst. So don't be afraid to witness to all people from all backgrounds. The rich and the poor, it doesn't matter. Those that are living in darkness, they need to have the answer. Sometimes, you know, I think we feel like we're shy. I am. I can be shy. I mean, sometimes it's, I'm telling you girls, honestly, it's easier for me to get up and speak to all of you together than one person on a plane. Because I, see, you can't interrupt me. <laughs> and so, but on a plane, you know, they can argue with you. And so I fly all the time, you know, so I get some opportunities sometimes, but um, I can be shy about witnessing. And I think that, you know what, I understand that. I think we all can be shy. But I think about Peter, and you know what? He, he was just such a zealot. You know, he was always going to fix everything and solve problems and take over. And then one day, when Jesus is going to trial and going to be crucified, he can't even get up the nerve to say that he is one of the disciples to a slave girl. And so he denies Jesus three times when Jesus needed him the very most in his whole life. How horrible Peter felt. But you know, just before this, Jesus knew this was coming. And he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But he also said something else to Peter before this. He said, Peter, you're going to become a rock. In other words, hang in there, Peter. Wait till you get filled with the Holy Spirit. You won't believe it. Your life is going to turn upside down. And you'll be able to witness. So much so that at Pentecost, he's the one who stood up and preached that sermon to thousands of people on that day that came to Christ. Wow, what a difference in him. So if you are shy, just ask the Lord to just let the Holy Spirit strengthen you and to be brave and give you opportunities. And you know what? We don't have to go to people and say, you're going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. You know, you need to get saved. You're going to die in your sin. You know what? Sometimes it's bringing over a loaf of bread or a a cake that you baked to the new neighbor that just moved in down the street. They'll be shocked, you know. And, or, or someone at work, something that you, you do something kind for someone. That's how you witness to them. You start by loving them, and then one day you're going to get that opportunity if you pray for it. And they'll come to you probably saying, what in the world do you have that I don't have? Because you're never a wreck like I am, and then you get to tell them. The Lord will always open the doors for you, but just ask him to give you the courage. And you know what? He can make us all rocks. He can make us strong in him to witness Almost two weeks ago now, John was asked to speak. We were back in Philadelphia in a place in Philly called Kensington Street. There was a church there called The Rock, and um, a a pastor named Buddy was the one who was pastoring it. He was in his 50s. We went down that day to this church, 
and Buddy began to pour out the story of this church. It is in the worst area of Philadelphia. It is the drug capital of the city. It's the worst corner. It is the fifth worst corner of drug dealing in the United States. It is full of prostitutes and drug addicts and street people. They're doing deals all the time. There's a train that goes on a bridge overhead every little while. They stop there and drug deals are made. It is really a dark, dark place. My husband said, it is the last stop on the road, Kensington Street. And I say it is the back door to hell, and it is where Satan drops you off when he's finally finished with you. And in the middle of this dark darkness is this man called Buddy, who started this church called The Rock. Buddy took us on a tour. We actually had two bodyguards go with us on this tour. (laughs) And uh, I was teasing him. They were young men, but I knew they were our bodyguards. And uh, they respected Buddy, so they, they left us alone on the street and... He had bought a couple of their buildings on the street to house these prostitutes that wanted to get out of prostitution and girls to have a place to go that were escaping and another place where they're going to sell health food, really cheap, healthy food for these people. And then they bought another lot. And in the middle of this blank, empty lot, they put a stone cross on the ground. It's a big old stone cross. And he said, that's where we're going to put a Christian school. And he turned around and he said, see that door right back there with 1818 written on it, the address? He said, that's where I grew up. I grew up on this street. I moved here when I was five. He said, you know, I grew up and I joined the mafia. And he really did. And he went to prison. And you know what? One day, some adorable black Baptist pastor called him on the phone and led him to Christ. And Buddy became a Christian. And now Buddy went back downtown on Kensington Street. And he started a church. And the light is there. For those people to come in. I saw one old man. You don't see a lot of old people on Kensington Street. And he was going with a cart. Like a little cart. You know, a shopping little cart. And in it he had a big old Bible. And he had come from the church. And I thought, look at this light. In this dark city. In this dark, dark area of the United States. We have our own Indias. We do. And you know what? Jesus wants to reach those people. And he sends out people that can reach them. He wants to use us wherever we are. Don't miss an opportunity to share the gospel. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go downtown L.A. or Kensington Street. But you do have neighbors, and most of you have jobs, and you have people around you that need to know about Jesus, and they just loving folks is the only way to win them, just to love on them. And it's so hard, I think, to, to minister and witness to your family. You know, if you became a Christian when you're older... And the family's going, yeah, right. It's her new thing she's trying. She's in a cult at that Calvary Chapel, you know. And, and you, know, you know what they're saying about you and what's the matter with you. And, you know, and it's hard to witness to your family and your best friends because they've watched you grow up. But don't be afraid. The Lord will open opportunities. My sister-in-law grew up with her best friend, Colleen, and they went through junior high and high school and college age together, and then they both got married. And then my sister-in-law is going to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And she's, no, she's got to tell Colleen about this. (laughs) So one day she finally says to Colleen, now they, you know, they're married, and um, she says, Colleen, do you know what it means to be a Christian? She said, yeah, you you just, you live a decent life. You do good works and good things. She says, no, Colleen, that, that isn't what it means to be a Christian. It isn't? No. And so Marilyn explained the gospel to her, that she needed to be saved and ask Christ in her heart and 
be born again and ask the Lord to forgive her our sins and walk with Jesus. And that's what it meant to be a Christian. And you know what Colleen did? She just sat there and the tears began to roll down her face. And she said, Marilyn, why didn't you ever tell me this before? You know, I have this fear in life that I'm going to get to heaven. I'll be, you know, seeing the judgment. I don't know that how it's going to be all arranged, but looking across the abyss and seeing people that I knew and having them look at me and go, you had the answer and you never told us. And it just makes me sick. So girls, what I'm saying is don't miss opportunities to let your light shine. And sometimes it just starts by being loving to somebody. You know, soft answer that turns away wrath. Not fighting back. Being kind. Doing a kind act for somebody. That's how you start. Jesus did miracles. He reached people by making them well and, and uh, you know, healing the blind and the lepers and all the things he did. And we can reach out that same way. I'm going to close with this story. I love it. It's one of my favorites, and you've probably heard it. But it's just is one of those classic examples of letting your light shine. It's the story of Edward Kimball. Heaven only knows the impact our witnesses will have on this earth. Some of you have heard the story of Edward Kimball, who gathered up his nerve to witness to win the soul of a young shoe salesman named D.L. Moody to Christ. Moody went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the world, certainly the greatest at the time in this nation. But do you know the rest of that whole story? Moody went to England and worked a profound change in the ministry of a man called F.B. Meyer. Some of you have his commentaries. F.B. Meyer, with his new evangelistic fervor, influenced another man named J. Wilbur Chapman. And Chapman, in turn, helped in the ministry of the converted baseball player, Billy Sunday. You've all heard of him. Who had a profound impact on a man named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham was holding a revival meeting in North Carolina and led Billy Graham to Christ. You know, it all started with just a shy man who was just a layman named Edward Kimmel, who took seriously Christ's commission to witness to the world. And he started at work with the shoe salesman. You never know, girls, where it's going to lead. You never do. And it's exciting. And God put you out in this city, in this area, to be lights in your community. May God use every one of you, wherever you are, and where you're shy or feel like you failed. You know what? The, the devil wants you to feel guilty and discouraged. Don't let him. Just say, you know what? Jesus is going to use me tomorrow. You'll see. And he will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you so much for... Um, every woman in this room. Lord, I just thank you for her life and that she's here tonight. And I ask, Lord, that you would encourage us all to just let our light shine. Lord, that we might be a witnesses wherever we go. Even, at, Lord, with our starting at home with our families, which is sometimes the hardest place to let our light shine. And, Lord, may we do that. May we get up in the morning and spend time with you. And may you fill up our tanks, Lord, with the things of the Holy Spirit that we might, Lord, minister to people throughout the day. Just love on them. Lord, thank you that when you came to earth, you weren't a harsh king that told us what to do and beat us with whips, but you are a God that stooped down and washed people's feet and healed the lepers and the blind and reached out to the hurting and the bent over people, Lord, that were here. 
that bent over woman on that day, that man at the pool of Bethesda. Lord, I ask that you would use us in the lives of others like this. They are bent over in sin. Lord, some of them can't even see anything but their feet anymore. And Lord, you want to straighten them up to see your face. May you use us as instruments in your army in these last days at this time. Thank you, Lord, and praise you for what you're going to do. Lord, just be with Rob tonight as he's down in Peru ministering the gospel. I pray that you'd use him as a light down there too. Keep him well and keep him safe. In Jesus' name, amen.